As we have been walking through this series, just for those of you that are maybe new, want to give you just real quick, we are looking at God's people that have been taken into exile into Babylon. And they have been taken from their home about 700 miles away, brought into a new city, a new culture with different beliefs, different values, different practices, different gods than the God that they worshiped and the culture that they have been used to. And they are exiles. They're having to figure out what does it look like to be faithful in a place that is totally different from what God has set up. What does it look like? And the book is written to give us strength to be able to live as people in a world, in a culture that's not ours, that often is hostile. It's written to give endurance. It's written to give wisdom and guidance. It's written to help us live in a modern-day Babylon. That is what the book is for. And so we've been exploring all sorts of things around that. And if you were here last week, the the book of Daniel begins to kind of take a turn. The first six chapters of the book of Daniel are a lot of the classic kids' stories that maybe you've heard of Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Bendy Joe, as I call him, that are in the fiery furnace and all of that stuff. You've maybe kind of heard about that stuff. It's just these different narratives that are kind of famous that teach us. And now it's taken this turn, and it's the rest of the book, into Daniel's crazy LSD trip. He's been listening to Joe Rogan too much, taking shrooms, all whatever stuff. And he's having all these crazy visions uh, that God is giving him. They're not just him you know, on his bed. But God is giving him these visions of the future and what's going to happen. And it's bizarre. It's wild. It's stuff that it, it's not as easy to just say, this means this, and we can learn this, and here's what it says about God. It's, it's a little bit harder. And so if you are recently joining us, I just want to acknowledge up front that some of the stuff in here is a little weird. It's a little strange, but God still gives it to us to help us. It's, it's not the, the genre of literature that most often we probably gravitate towards in the Bible, Uh, When you're really struggling, you probably go to the Psalms and maybe when you're like, what do I do with my life? You kind of go to maybe some of the stories that the Bible tells so you can go, okay, maybe I can live my life like that or some of the teaching of Jesus. You probably don't normally go, I just need a weird, crazy vision about four-headed leopards. That'll help me today in my struggles. And yet, God gives it to us. He gives us half of this book of Daniel really with a lot of these visions because we need different kinds of genres. For those of you that are maybe really artistic, you maybe you love this stuff and and that's great. You know, maybe you're a little weird and that's okay, but you you love this kind of stuff. So, that's what we're looking at. I just want to give you some of that preface that it turns to this. And as I was reading this this week, have you ever wondered why people like scary movies or scary stuff? And I don't know if you personally like that stuff, but it's, we just came out of Halloween where little demons come and knock on your door and ask for candy, right? And you've got, some of them are just cute Disney characters, but there's a lot of demons. Now, one of my neighbors had all these crazy blow up and statues of demonic clown kind of things. And like, here, come get killed by a clown and have a rhesus. It's a weird uh, sort of thing. But we, as a culture, like scary stuff, right? There's all sorts of scary movies. There's all sorts of weird masks and all sorts of things that maybe you personally like. And I don't know why uh, maybe you gravitate towards that or if you've thought about, why do I like scary things? Or why does our culture like 
scary things. There's a lot of different reasons. I was doing some research on this this week. And actually, just one little interesting fact, it said that people that uh, like scary movies or like kind of the horror genre of things were less scared about COVID. And that kind of is one of the little clues as to maybe part of why we like those things is because it actually helps us sometimes process through fantasy the real evils that are in our world. It kind of acts like a catharsis or a pressure valve release that as we focus kind of on the the evil that's here, it helps us to manage our emotions around the evil that is real. Like, oh, okay, there's a pandemic, but I just watched about a scary ghost eating people. And so, okay, maybe my expectations can be managed a little bit. It's not usually that conscious. It's kind of operating at a subconscious level where we're just processing. Scary movies or things like that help us acknowledge evil's real. It exists. And maybe even helps you kind of understand it a little bit and how it works. And also, most scary movies, there's some sort of kind of defeat that happens. So it helps you process, okay, the evil in the world can be defeated. Now, I'm not, this is not like a go watch scary movies. That's your sermon application. That's not what I'm trying to tell you to do. I'm just saying, what, what is it that kind of draws us to some of those things? And I think a big part of it is we know there's evil in the world, right? We know there's evil in the world. You just have to kind of look through the headlines and you see there is evil in the world. There's war in the world. There is death and suffering in the world. There is persecution in the world that Christians face. There is financial crisis in the world. Some of you are probably concerned about that. There is sickness in the world. There's all sorts of problems and evil in the world, right? And in our life, we face evil in our life. You have experienced suffering. You've experienced hurt. You've experienced sin that has been done against you. And if we want to be faithful as Christians, we do have to figure out How do I manage living in a world of evil? For them, they had to figure out, how do I manage living in a city, in a culture where for my faith, I could be burnt alive, where one empire is constantly at war taking over another empire? How do I manage living in a world that is full of evil? And if we want to be faithful, you and I have to figure out that same thing. We've got to figure out, how do I face evil? How do I live in a world where there's global evil, where there's personal evil? How can I not just kind of put my head in the ground and hope that things get better? How can I actually have a peace, an endurance, a perseverance that is able to face the evil in the world and still be faithful? How do I do that? This chapter that we get and really the last chapter and the upcoming chapter, all of these in some ways kind of function like scary movies, but they're real. They help show a a vision, a picture of here's the evil that's in the world and how that can actually then help help us be faithful. So we're going to look at three truths about evil that we need to help us face the evil that's in the world and it's in our lives in order to be faithful. Now, it's going to be weird. That's okay. Here we go. Here is what it says. Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me. Daniel, after the ones that had appeared to me earlier. So he even remembers the ones that had come before, and now he's getting some new ones. I saw the vision, 
This is about two years later from the one that we talked about last week. I saw the vision, and as I watched, I was in the fortress city of Susa in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was beside the Ule Canal. I looked up, and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. So I'm going to read through this, and then he's going to get, Daniel's going to get the interpretation of what the vision is. So you can kind of keep these pictures in mind, but then we'll look at what the interpretation is the angel gives to him. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stand against him, and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. As I was observing, a male goat appeared, coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground, meaning going quick. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram and infuriated with him. He struck the ram, breaking his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then... The male goat acted even more arrogantly, but when he became powerful, the large horn was broken. Four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven. From one of them, a little horn emerged and grew extensively towards the south and the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew as high as the heavenly army, made some of the army and some of the stars fall to the earth and trampled them. It acted arrogantly even against the prince of the heavenly army, that would be God. It revoked his regular sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. In the rebellion, the army was given up together with the regular sacrifice. The horn threw truth to the ground and was successful in what it did. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, how long will the events of this vision last? The regular sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and of the army to be trampled. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there stood before me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from the middle of the Ulai, Gabriel, explain the vision to this man. So he approached where I was standing. When he came near, I was terrified and fell face down. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me, made me stand up and said, I am here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath because it refers to the appointed time, the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media." And Persia. Now let me stop here, and I'll, as he starts interpreting this, I'll just tell you a little bit about this stuff, kind of historically. He says that the two-horned ram is the kings of Media and Persia. So it was this kind of combined empire, and it even has the ram having two different horns. Well, let me actually back up for one second. Last week, we looked at a vision that Daniel had. And what I told you and what commentators, scholars will say is some people can kind of point to some things and say, okay, we think this means this, we think this means this, but there's also a lot of, we don't really know, so kind of what's the big idea? 
This vision is a lot different because the angel actually tells him, this means this, this means this, this means this, and lays it out to him. So it's actually, we're, we have more room to be able to actually point to things instead of just general ideas and general themes and go, okay, there's four beasts in the world. Maybe that's pointing to four different empires. Maybe it's just saying that there will always be beasts that are ruling in the world. But this, he actually says, here's what it is. It means this and this and this. And there's a lot of specificity in this so we can actually point to things. And I'll also tell you this. There's so much specificity in this that critics of the Bible think it was written way later because it's so specific that either it predicted things that would happen hundreds of years in the future or it was written later than what we believe that this was written by Daniel it was written way later after the events, and it was just kind of referencing them. So there's so much specificity in here that either it must be from God, or it's kind of not really true, and it's a lie, and Daniel didn't write it. Now, obviously, what we believe is that this is from God, and so he is able to say with great specificity, here's the things that are going to happen. So just want to put that out there. He says, there's the ram. Okay, and the ram, in the beginning, if you remember, he says it's conquering all over the place. And this is the Persian media empire, where it is overtaking much of the known world. This was the main empire that was taking place. And Persia really kind of, it talks about one horn being longer than the other, because Persia, even though it was kind of this combined kingdom, Persia was really the main leader. So when you even kind of trace world kingdoms, most people just talk about Persia being the main dominant kingdom of this time. Uh, Persia was constantly trying to expand their empire. One of, the, one of the kingdoms that they were trying to overtake was Greece. Most of the time, not really successful. If you've ever seen the movie or know the story, 300, that's the Persian empire trying to take over the Greeks and not succeeding at that place. If, uh, if any of you like to do marathons, you're strange. And if you like to do that, uh, the, that comes from the Persians trying to overtake the Greeks and the runner, I can't remember his name, something with a P, he runs the 26 whatever miles it is and he tells Athens, he runs from Marathon to Athens saying, we won. Okay, so there's all this history here where the Median Persian Empire is one of the dominant empires, but eventually the enemy that they could never defeat actually grows to overtake them. So here's what happens next. He says that the ram is that. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. The four horns that took the place of the broken horn represent four kingdoms, that they will rise from that nation, but without its power. Now, media Persian empire tries to overtake Greece, doesn't work. Greece, then, it talks about the shaggy goat that moves super quick and just goes across. This is referring to the king of Greece, which is Alexander the Great, who it kind of overnight rose up. He was young and overtakes everything. His empire grows huge, defeats the Persians, defeats everybody, and grows his empire massively, very, very, very quickly. Then he dies suddenly. I think he's like 30, very, very early age. He dies suddenly and it's over. And then the kingdom is split into his four generals, which is exactly what this, this is. You can all look this up in history. I'm not, this is not just Bible. This is, again, why they say uh, either this is prophecy or 
this was written a lot later. So Alexander the Great dies suddenly, and then four generals begin to rule in different parts of the kingdom. That's what happens next. And then from those four kingdoms, they will rise from that nation, but without its power near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne. His power will be great, but it will not be his own. So from those four kingdoms, from the four kind of split up kingdom of Greece, one will come up from that. That will be skilled in intrigue. He will be ruthless. It said in the, this is the interpretation, but in the beginning it talked about that he will end the religious sacrifices, that he will desecrate the temple, that he will throw truth to the ground. It talks about all these evil, awful things that he will do. I'll keep reading and then I'll tell you about who this is. He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be broken, not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. So out of those four kingdoms, another person rises up. Antiochus IV, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, which was a name he gave himself, the Epiphanes part, meaning God in the flesh. And he comes. And he comes into, this is after this, right? This is a couple hundred, few hundred years after this. He comes and he kills 40,000 Jews in a couple days. He comes into the temple. He sets up a statue to Zeus in the temple that has been rebuilt. If you were here uh, at the beginning of the year, we went through the book of Haggai where they rebuild the temple. He comes into the temple, sets up a statue of Zeus, and he sacrifices pigs and humans on the altar. This is the abomination of desolation that they call it in the Bible. This is, if you know anything about Jews, pigs, unclean animal, obviously they worship Yahweh, not Zeus. So he's doing things intentionally arrogant and provocative. He is doing things intentionally blasphemous. He burns every copy of the scriptures that he can find, throws truth to the ground murders, kills, does everything sacrilegious, blasphemous that you can possibly imagine. Outlaws circumcision, which was the Jewish sign of a covenant with God. Does everything you can imagine that this describes. And then, suddenly, not by human hands, dies. Just a stomach bug or something. People aren't entirely sure. A stomach bug, a.k.a. a Yahweh bug that kills him and he dies but he does all of these horrible things so people look at this and go either this is prophecy or something that people wrote down after it already happened this is the vision that the angel gives to him and daniel says and then the angel says now you are to seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future i daniel was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. So this all gives to us three key truths that we need to see about evil. Here's the first one, that evil is awful. Very simple, and yet 
very true and something that we actually need to see. This is what, in both of these visions that Daniel has been given, it helps communicate or reinforce the idea that evil is great. And by great, I don't mean that it's good, but that it's powerful. Evil is powerful. It's awful. It's prevalent. It's massive. It's influential. That evil is a prevalent and powerful force in our world. Look look at what some of the words that it says. This is a ruthless king. He does outrageous destruction. He he will destroy. He causes deceit to prosper. He destroys many in a time of peace. He stands against the prince of princes. He stands against God. This is awful, right? The language that it is describing is to say evil has power. Evil has pervasive influence and causes destruction and causes deceit to prosper. Evil is powerful. It's awful. Now, he gives Daniel this vision of a historical event that's going to happen. But, and this is similar to the vision that Daniel got last time, what we're also supposed to see here is this is a specific event, but it also is the pattern of history. Is this the only time that a ruthless king has arisen? Is this the only time that deceit has prospered? Is this the only time that rulers have stood against the prince of princes? Is this the only time that people have been destroyed in a time of peace? No. This is both a historical event, but it is also the pattern of evil that will be present in our world until Jesus returns. When you get to the New Testament, this has already happened. This has already happened. And yet, Paul describes in very similar language, referring to this, to say this is what will happen again, because it's both a specific event, but also a pattern. Let me, let me show you just kind of what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, and look how similar this is to an event that already happened. He says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, he is, some people were saying that Jesus had already turned, and Paul is saying, no, Jesus has not returned. Don't let anyone deceive you, for that day Jesus returning will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. This is very similar language to what was used in Daniel 8. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this. And you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. He's talking about this lawless person that will come. But he says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This is kind of the pattern, the spirit from Satan that's always at work in the world. But the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. And John says something similar to what I'm trying to help us see here. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so one day there's this person that's going to come, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. So you see what both of these people are saying, Paul and John, are saying there is a future individual that's going to come who will oppose Christ 
And that will be the very end when Jesus returns and sets all things right. But before that, the Antichrist, the lawless one, before that, there is already a spirit of lawlessness at work. There is already many Antichrists that have come. There is, in Daniel 8, a prophecy about a man that's going to come and cause all of this desolation and destruction and oppose God. And that's a specific event. But just like the previous chapter we looked at, it is also a pattern of what will continue to happen. Who's the Antichrist? Well, it's Hitler. And it's, it's uh, Mao Zedong. And it's Pol Pot. And it's Stalin. And it's all sorts of people. It's all sorts of people that do the very things that have been said. There's people in our world today. I, you probably have people in mind, but I'm not going to say that. It's probably just political enemies that you have. You're like, I know the Antichrist. I just saw his name on the ballot. But it's all sorts of people, right? And there will one day be another. So all of this is to say that evil is awful. It is the pattern and specific events that take place. Evil is awful. Again, I know that's a simple truth, but there will always be evil in the world that does what is described here, that exalts itself as God, that exalts self and talks about self and how awesome self is and glorifies self. There will always be evil in the world that is deceptive and sounds good. It says he was a master of intrigue. It talks about him being able to use deceit and cunning. And those were things, again, in history that Antiochus was able to use to gain his power and do the various things he did. Evil will always sound good. Evil doesn't just come out right and say, I am evil. Hello. Evil is cunning. It is deceitful. It uses intrigue to gain attention. So evil always exalts self. Evil always is deceitful and sounds good. And evil is powerful. Evil has power. Evil uses awful power to use and do its ends and goals in the world. This is what will always be true with leaders, with systems, with values. Anything that we, we need to pay attention to self-exaltation. We need to pay attention to things that sound really good but are against God's word. We need to pay attention when we see the devouring of flesh and power that is used to defeat and to control. So this is what he says. Evil is awful. Why would he give this kind of... I mean, Daniel's sick in bed. The last vision that we got, it said he turned pale and he's like, doesn't even know what to do. Why would he give him this horror movie? Why would he give this? Oh, it's an angel. Like you think an angel appears and you're going to feel really encouraged. Oh, it's an angel. Oh my gosh, I can't even sleep. Like that's what usually happens when an angel appears is people freak out. That's why oftentimes the first thing an angel says is, okay, don't be afraid. Fear not because it's a scary thing. If you tell me that you saw an angel and it was just a delightful experience, I will think more so you were hallucinating than if you say, I was terrified. It was freaky. I couldn't get out of bed. Like, oh, maybe you did see an angel. That's what happens here. Why tell him that? Why give him this vision? Well, in part, because when we know evil is awful and the world is going to be full of it, specific events and the pattern of history, when we know that, it helps set our expectations for this world. It helps set our expectations for our life. 
The world is, is evil. The world is painful. Christianity is hard. Evil is real. That should set our expectations. That should help us know what to expect. Because if we miss that, then what happens? Then when life doesn't go the way that we thought it would go and we encounter suffering, when life doesn't go the way we wanted it to go and we encounter evil, then what happens? We get mad at God. We feel maybe even tricked or betrayed. I thought you promised me a good life. I thought that you were supposed to be for me. I thought nothing bad was going to happen to me because I followed you and I obeyed you and I worshiped you. I thought life was going to be good. And then we start to doubt and we question and maybe we deconstruct and we, we just kind of feel like God's not on our side anymore. And so to set expectations, it's important to hear the world is full of pain. Jesus said the same thing. Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. Paul said, anyone that wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Like This is managing expectations so that when we encounter it, we don't freak out and think this is a bug in the system and something's wrong. Instead, it's, no, this is how it's going to be. This is the fallen, broken world we live in. Pain, suffering, evil. That is what is true. It's not just that there's one day some future Antichrist. John says, there's a bunch of Antichrists. Oh, great. This is just the final one's just the sequel. It's, there's already been tons of them. That is what we should expect, that life is filled with these things. But that helps us. Some of you are in certain lines of work where, and probably most people at some level, where there's a busy season or there's a certain season that comes up. And, you know, if you're an accountant or in finance and it's tax season, and it's, when that happens, it's, it gets crazy. You work long hours. It's, it's really busy. For those of you in education, maybe it's finals or, or the weeks that are right before a break. And you know there's going to be a lot of stuff happening right when school starts or right when school ends. And it gets busy. And if you didn't know that that was going to happen, it would just freak you out instead of knowing, okay, I know that March is going to be brutal. I know that June or May is going to be really busy. It actually helps you to know what to expect. Sometimes with our kids, we usually go on a hike on Saturday, and if it's going to be a particularly long one, I normally tell them, like, hey, this is going to be a long hike, not just, oh, you know, who knows how long it's going to be. But I like to set expectations so that they can know. Here is what to expect. We like that. It helps us be able to handle the difficulty that we face. And so God is honest with us. Aren't you glad that he's honest with you? Instead of kind of holding it back? Aren't you glad that he's honest and says, look, there's a lot of evil in the world. That's what we should expect. Aren't you glad that Jesus says in this world, you're going to experience trouble? Like that helps us to know, okay, he is, he is not hiding things from me. In fact, the fact that he calls things evil, even in here, that he says this is evil destruction and this is ruthless, he names the evil that's done. The fact that Jesus names, that God names evil, is actually a great sign of God's empathy and care for us. Imagine if God said in these chapters, yeah, you know, it's not ideal, but it's, you know, life just kind of happens. It's okay. But that's not what he says. He says it's ruthless. He says it's destruction. It's destroying. 
it's evil. For God to name evil is actually a sign of his empathy in our life. Because the truth is, we've all, God looks at the world, but he also sees our life. And the things that have happened to you, God uses the right language for it. And says, that was abuse. That was betrayal. That was evil that was done to you. That was wrong. God doesn't just look at the pain that you've experienced and say, you know, it's okay. Not that big of a deal. God actually names it and doesn't say it's fine. For God to acknowledge evil is actually a gift to us of his honesty and also his empathy to say, this is wrong. And just like we can agree with that, God says the same. So that's the first truth that we need if we want to be able to face and endure evil in our world is simply to be able to acknowledge that God and we can say evil is awful. So it's awful, it's present, it's powerful, it's pervasive. And secondly, evil is known. It's known. Oftentimes, we believe that we will have peace if we know the future. We oftentimes believe, if I can know exactly what's going to happen, okay, I'll be at peace. That's why we a lot of times make plans, because it gives us a sense of control that, okay, if I can plan this out, what if this, it's why you think about in your head when you're going to have a conversation, and you go, okay, if I say this, and they're going to say this, and what if they do this, and what if this, because we think if we can kind of plan it out, we'll get some sort of peace. It's why some of us really like statistics and data because it is supposed to be predictive that, okay, well, this is what normally happens. This is what normally happens with the market or this is what normally happens with my age and this is what normally happens in marriage or with kids or we like to be able to kind of plan things out because it helps us, we believe, be able to have peace and not be anxious the more that we can know the future. And yet, that's not actually true. Daniel is given this vision of the future. He is watching it. He's trying to understand it. And he's overcome and lays sick for days. He's greatly disturbed and couldn't understand it. Even though God, this is so important, even though God tells him the future, he still couldn't even understand it. Even though God tells him the future, Daniel doesn't go, I've got a lot of peace now. Instead, he's greatly disturbed and he's sick. He, does, he still doesn't get it. Because think about your life. If God told you when you were 10 years old everything that was going to happen in your life and you were 10, would you have gone, ah, I have peace? Not me. I would have been drowning my sorrows in Capri Sun and just laid out, you know. It would have been bad. It, I would have just said, if, if, if when God came to me when I was 10 and told me what my life was going to be, it, I mean, I, I don't know how I would have lived. Like most of us think knowing the future gives us peace. And yet the reality is Daniel's given the vision of the future and he doesn't understand it and it doesn't give him peace. He's greatly disturbed. But what we need is not us knowing the future. What we need is knowing that God knows the future. And that's what Daniel is given. See, the fact that the vision can be explained, he says, explain the vision to this man. Gabriel explained the vision to this man, which is God telling him that. And 
than Gabriel saying, I'm here to tell you what's going to happen. That means what? It means that God knows what's going to happen. And peace comes from not us knowing the future, but us knowing that God knows the future. That's where peace actually comes from. Now, I said that it's good for us to be able to manage expectations. So in some ways to know the future in general helps us. But we think that if we know all the details and everything that's going to happen in our life, that then that will create a sense of peace and, and it'll create a sense of understanding. But for Daniel, it didn't do that. And for us, it doesn't do that. In fact, part of the point of this is this. If God were to tell you your future, if God were to tell you what was going to happen, you would actually not get it. You would actually go, I don't get it. I don't understand. This doesn't make sense to me. It might make you sick. You might feel like this is twisted. You wouldn't get it. But peace is going to come from knowing God knows it. God knows it. If God gave the vision, it means God knows it. If God explained it, it means God understands it. You don't have to understand it. That's actually freeing. You don't have to understand what's happening in your life. God does. You don't have to totally get it and have it planned out. God does. Have you ever said to God similar things that Daniel is saying? Have you ever said, God, I don't understand why you allowed this to happen financially. God, I don't understand why you allowed this to happen relationally. God, I don't understand why you allowed this to happen in my life. I don't understand why you made me this way, why you let this happen to me, why you let me be like this, why you let that happen to them, someone that you love. Have you ever said to God, I don't understand. Why? Daniel's in that same place. I know I've said that to God many times. But peace doesn't come from knowledge. It comes from knowing God's knowledge. Peace doesn't come from us having the map of life figured out. Some of you really need to hear that because, and listen, I'm a, I'm a planner too. I'm not saying planning is bad, but you think that if you can just plan out the conversation, plan out your life, plan out your day, plan out your health, plan out your parenting, plan out that then you'll have peace. But that's not really true. Peace comes from knowing that God knows it. Peace comes from knowing that God's in control of it. Peace comes not from knowing that you now know so you can have control. It comes from knowing God perfectly knows and God is in perfect control. That's where you will actually get peace. You don't have to understand it. You know the one that does. A lot of times when we know that someone understands something, we have a lot of trust in them. There's people, even I just think financially, there's people kind of in the market that have made past predictions about things. Uh, there was a movie, I can't remember what the movie was, but it was about the kind of 2007 financial crisis that happened and the guy that had, I think, was, I think it was called The Big Short, and he had kind of predicted all that stuff. So now a lot of times people are like, oh, what's this guy say about right now? He was the one that predicted this before because he knew what was gonna happen. Maybe we can trust him and ask him questions about now. And that's just one example. That's true with all sorts of things. There's sports analysis. There's every election season I see you know, some article about this guy's predicted every election that's gonna happen what does he say it's going to be? And it only takes one time for that not to be true. And then nah, we don't care about you anymore, right? But, but when someone kind of knows or has predicted what's going to happen before, then we have some sort of trust 
in them to tell us what's going to happen. And with God, he has told us what is true. And thus, that's not the only reason, but we can trust him. God knows what is going to happen. God is saying, you don't get it, you don't understand, but I'm not surprised. God is saying, if I laid it all out for you, you would still be confused, but I'm not. What looks like a big jumbled mess to you is perfectly clear to me. What looks like a horror film to you is perfectly understandable to me. God knows. So evil is known. Evil is known. God is saying, I'm in control. I'm not surprised. In the world and in your life, God knows and God's in control. If you can grab onto those two things to say, God knows, God's in control, that will help you in a thousand different situations. When you're looking at the election, when you're looking at headlines, when you're looking at your job, when you're looking at your financial situation, when you're looking at your family, when you're looking at these problems and you say, God knows and God's in control. That helps give us some of the endurance and perseverance and peace that we need to face evil, to face suffering, to face the difficulty that we have in our life. It's not about knowing everything. It's about knowing the one that does know everything. So that's the second thing. And then third is that evil is defeated. There's at least three truths that we need to be able to endure and face evil in the world. It's that evil is awful. We can acknowledge that. That evil is known, but also that evil ultimately is defeated. Daniel asks, how long is this going to last? He gets this whole vision of all these awful things that are happening and says, a natural question, how long? How long is that going to happen? How long is that going to go on for? And he is told, as he asks, how long will the events of the vision last? And he is told it's 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary, the temple, will be restored and evil will be defeated. This person will be broken by God, not by human hands. Now, this 2,300 evenings, mornings is, again, kind of one of anytime there's numbers and days and a lot of times in apocryphal literature, which is what this is, uh, apocalyptic, excuse me, apocalyptic literature, when it, it uses numbers and things, a lot of it is symbolic and sometimes it's actual literal, so it can be hard to kind of identify exactly, but a lot of people count this number to be a literal evenings and mornings, and that is right about the time that... Antiochus Epiphanes was kicked out of the temple. There was a revolt that happened. Maybe some of you have heard about it, uh, led by Judas Maccabees and the Maccabees family. This is what, where Hanukkah is celebrated, where they came. I'm trying to remember the exact year. It was one, right, like 170-ish BC. They came and they took back the temple. They had a revolt and they were able to restore the temple. And the whole idea of Hanukkah is, it has multiple different things, but it's this idea that they began to celebrate that light appeared. That when it seemed like all hope was lost, light appeared. One of the earliest historians commenting on the meaning of Hanukkah, Josephus, said, I'm trying to find my exact quote, he said that light appeared, that a liberty beyond hope had appeared. 
And so we celebrated it with, with light, that a liberty, a freedom beyond hope, that in the middle of the darkest stuff that they experienced, a freedom, a liberty, a salvation beyond hope appeared. And so they celebrate it with, with lights. Now, you know what happens is Jesus comes and he comes to the temple as they're celebrating Hanukkah. And this is where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the, he doesn't use this phrase, but now I'm expanding. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the liberty beyond hope. I am the light that appears in darkness and brings salvation when all seems lost. Jesus shows up as they're celebrating Hanukkah, as they're remembering God's deliverance, as they're remembering God's restoration, as they're remembering that God fought for them when it seemed like all hope was lost, and yet salvation and judgment came, and Jesus says, I'm the light. I'm the true form of Hanukkah. I'm what you're actually celebrating without even knowing it. I'm God fighting for you. I'm God bringing salvation. I'm God defeating evil. I'm God bringing light into a dark world. That's what Jesus shows up and tells us. And so I don't know where you might be asking what Daniel asked. How long are these things going to happen? How long is this going to last, whether it's personally in your life or it's in the world as we experience specific and patterns of evil? I don't know exactly where you ask that question, but Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the one that defeats evil. Every evil will one day end. Every sickness will one day end. Every sorrow will one day end. Every tear will be wiped from every eye. That is what will take place one day. Jesus says, I have come. I've already begun that work, and one day I will finish that work. My kingdom has already been brought, and one day will be fully consummated. Evil will be defeated. Amen. There you go. Yeah. That's what one extra hour of daylight savings does. You know, we, we get some class. Next, next week, let's start at you know, noon and see what happens. <clears throat> One day, evil will be defeated. That is what will happen. Jesus comes and says he is the light of the world, which means there is an end to whatever you're facing. There is an end to whatever sickness, sin, suffering that you face. Maybe God will show up in your life and defeat it, or maybe it will be on the day that you die. But one day, whatever you're facing will be over. It will be defeated, and you will experience creation as God intended it to be. That is what our future all holds. And no matter what you go through now, evil is defeated in the current state because it can't separate you from God. That's part of what Paul tells us in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8, when he says, no matter what we face, heights and depths, angels, demons, things past, things present, things future, he says it, it doesn't, none of it can separate you from God's love. So that's how evil is defeated, even in the middle of what you're facing right now, before the day that Jesus returns, is that it can't actually win. It can't separate you from the best thing that there is, which is God's love for us in Jesus. Nothing can separate you from that. So whatever sickness, whatever suffering, whatever pain, whatever hurt, none of that can move you away from God saying, I love you and I'm for you. So evil's defeated because of that. And evil's defeated on the day that Jesus returns. Now, what does that mean now? What does that mean now? I think it means exactly what Daniel did. It means 
Then I got up, went about the king's business. He gets this crazy vision of the end of the world and the, the end of the temple and all of this stuff. And what does he, I mean, I don't know what you would do in that situation. You might just go, well, that's crazy. I'm going on vacation. You know, I don't, I don't know what you would do. But Daniel says, all right, I'm in bed sick for a little bit because, wow, that is a crazy horror. Maybe you've watched a movie like that before and you're like, that was crazy. I need to like watch a Disney movie or something to detox, you know? And he watches this crazy vision, is sick in bed, and then he says, time to go to work. You see, that's what it really means for us too. God gives us this vision of the world. He gives us a vision of evil. He tells us it's awful, but I know and I'm in control and it will be defeated. And so what do we do? We go about the king's business. It means live your life. It means be faithful to what God has called you to do. Jesus says very similar things to his disciples when he's teaching. He says that he is going to return, but that when he returns, he should find us going about his business, being faithful to him. That when the master returns, the stewards that he has given his gifts, his talents to, shouldn't just kind of be found going, well, we weren't doing anything. But he says, when I return, I want to find you faithful. I want to find you going about my business. See, we can have the temptation when we hear about the end of the world or evil. We can have the temptation to either just be afraid, just kind of hunker down. We can have the temptation maybe to go, if life is really that scary, I got to find a way to just make life as comfortable as possible and maybe fit in and avoid this as much as possible. Maybe we have the temptation to um, just go, I just want to enjoy life then as much as possible. Eat, drink, for today we die, you know, be, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That kind of philosophy. Maybe that's how you feel. But Daniel actually shows us the model of faithfulness, which is all of your life matters. It doesn't matter if the end of the world comes tomorrow or if it comes millennia from now, that we are to be faithful to what God has given to us to do. Your job matters. Your family matters. Your marriage matters. Your friendships matter. Your church matters. Life matters. And just Daniel gets up, goes about the king's business, which that's not referring to King Jesus, by the way. That's referring to his employment in the government. He gets up, goes to work, does a good job, seeks to honor God, seeks to be faithful in all he's doing, seeks to, to be differentiated in his work and not identified too closely with the culture, but honoring and faithful to God. He seeks to go about the king's business. That's what we are called to do. Life matters. God says life matters. It's not just a none of it matters, the end of the world's coming. No, life here matters. And so we get up and we go about the king's business. So we live with the presence of evil. Some way we have to be able to manage that. You could just watch a bunch of scary movies and hope that helps. Or we can remember these truths that were given from Daniel's vision. That evil is awful but that God knows it and is in control of it and that it is and will be defeated. These are the three truths that we need, that God sees it, God knows about it, and that God does defeat it. And Daniel's given these visions, and I don't know about you, but maybe if you're given that vision, you might go, okay, but how do I believe that? How can I trust that you are in control or that you will defeat evil? Or how, how can I trust that? But Daniel has a whole history of the events that we already looked at. Daniel had already seen God show up in the lion's den. Daniel had already seen 
seen God show up in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel had already seen God show up with the miraculous uh, fruits and vegetables that led to a, a healthy diet. God had already seen, Dan, God, Daniel had already seen God show up saving him and his friends multiple times. Now, when we look at God, that's the same thing that needs to give us the courage to trust these things. See, we don't maybe have a, a lion's den or a fiery furnace, but we have Jesus. We go, how can I trust that God is in control of evil, that he will defeat evil, that he sees it, calls it awful? How, how can I trust that? We look at Jesus. And all these things are true when we look at him. We see that Jesus entered into the awfulness of evil in this world. He doesn't just call things evil. He felt the full weight of evil on the cross for you and I. We're going to take communion in just a moment. And communion is a time that Christians, and if, if, you, uh, if you didn't grab a little cup on the way in, you can grab one of those cups. But when, when we take communion, we're remembering that Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed. He felt the awfulness of evil. He felt the full weight of evil. And he knew it was going to happen. He knew evil. He didn't, Jesus says, no one, no one takes my life. I give my life. I'm laying it down willingly. He knew the evil that would come. And he stepped into it. He was in control of it the whole time. He felt the awfulness of evil, and yet he knew the evil, and he defeated the evil. He was dead, buried, and raised from life, defeating the worst that evil has. And so when we remember those truths, and even as we take communion to remember, we remember the world is full of evil. Jesus felt it. The world is full of evil. Jesus knew it. The world is full of evil. Jesus defeated it. We remember. And so we trust him. And we bring our life to him. And we go about the king's business, doing what he has called us to do. Seeing evil personally and globally and being able to face it faithfully with endurance. So as you take communion, confess maybe where there's been fear that has ruled your heart or maybe there's been disengagement because of the evil or a distrust of God. Confess some of those things and ask him to help you remember who he is, his presence, control of, experience in and defeat of evil. Ask him to make those truths even more real to your heart. I'll be in the back. If anyone would like prayer for anything, let's pray. And then we'll sing in response, take communion in response. Jesus, we thank you that you know the full weight of evil. It's not just us that experience evil. You lived through it. You know its awfulness. You've tasted the sting of death and hurt and suffering and persecution and sickness. And you, you felt the full weight of evil upon yourself. And Jesus, you have defeated evil on the cross. You have brought us into your family. You have brought us everlasting life with you. You have brought us a future that is secure, where a world restored will be able to be enjoyed by us with you forever. So help us, even as we live our lives, to be able to face evil knowing your ultimate control of it and ultimate defeat of it. Make these truths even now real to our hearts. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.